My experience is the experience of any young person who dreams of making a living, of getting an education, or who comes here fleeing from a conflict. The only difference is that there are some young people who, when they dream, can make that dream become true because they have a good passport. As the saying goes, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. For some people, a passport is just a document. But for many others, it can be a life changer. A passport can draw the line between being a migrant or an expat. A line that is made out of barbed wire. According to the International Organization for Migration, so far in 2023, almost 2,000 people have lost their lives or have been reported missing while migrating. With 441 deaths officially reported, this year has been the deadliest for people crossing the Mediterranean. If this wasn't shocking enough, far-right governments are criminalizing those trying to rescue people in distress. A lack of humanity that has turned the Mediterranean into a graveyard. From the left in the European Parliament, I am Marcella Via, and this is Look Left, New Politics Under the Lens. In today's episode of Look Left, we look at the EU migration policy. What is the impact of the EU on the lives of people on the move? What does the EU Asylum and Migration Pact mean? We dedicate this episode to all those who left their homes and started from zero in a new country, and to all those who lost their lives trying to do so. Often, we talk about migration using big numbers and statistics. So, to give you an idea of the real experience of migration, you will hear the story of Sani Ladan, a social educator, vocal anti-racist, and human rights activist from Cameroon. But that's not all, right, David? Yes, Marcello, we've got an interview with uh, left MEP Cornelia Ernst about EU migration policy and specifically her take on uh, new rules agreed by EU ministers on asylum just a few weeks ago. But before we get started, let's look at what has been happening across the streets of Europe. So we've just heard from uh, a protest that took place on uh, June 22nd against the construction of uh, one of the biggest tunnels separating France from Italy, like Southeast France from Italy, and... Uh, the group was uh, the um, Soulèvement de la Terre, which is actually now criminalized by mm. the Macron government. Yeah, Soulèvement de la Terre, the French environmental collective, um, they got banned a few weeks ago by Macron's interior minister, Gérald Darmanin. And this is kind of part of a growing trend of criminalization of uh, activism, uh, like we saw in our last episode with uh, Justina in Poland. And it's, yeah, it's pretty worrying what's going on. Yeah, France seems to be on fire. Also in the first episode, uh, we were talking about the protests that took place uh, against the retirement reform. So Macron seems not to have uh, a good time. Yeah, and I think this is kind of feeding into a broader questioning of, of Macron's commitment to rule of law and uh, normal standards of democracy. And uh, you hear it a lot from um, protesters, uh, not just Soulevement de la Terre, but also, as you say, trade unions about how he uh, forced through that pension reform. And it's, as I say, like part of a, a much bigger trend we're seeing a crackdown 
on uh, people trying to help, like uh, search and rescue. But we'll hear more about that later from Cornelia. Exactly. So uh, what has been happening uh, in the European Parliament during the last month? We need to allow biodiversity to grow back in a continent which is, has destroyed its ecosystems. We cannot let fake news peddlers, political gamblers and climate deniers prevail over science. Yeah, another major environmental issue today, that was uh, Greek MEP Petros Kokalis speaking about the uh, nature restoration law. Uh, that's the issue that's been uh, dominating the European Parliament's agenda for the last few months. It's a key part of the EU's uh, Green Deal that has unfortunately become a political football being used by the right and the far right. Yeah, and uh, we've seen how right-wing parties, including the EPP, were clapping when they managed to water down the content of the file, just to use an environmental metaphor. That was sad to see. Um, the ever rightward drifting uh, EPP, and more specifically the German delegation of the EPP, which has been energetically spreading lies and misinformation about uh, the content of the law in order to sink it and uh, score some empty political points. Can you recall some of the lies that uh, they said? Well, they claim it's going to damage uh, food security. That's the biggest one that it's going to reduce. That's been completely uh, debunked, uh, that it won't impact uh, food production and it won't impact food prices. That's another main pillar of their lies. They've both been debunked multiple times, including by farmers and even by the food and agribusiness uh, industry. Yeah, because also I think sometimes the files that uh, take place at the European Parliament are very jargoning, but the nature restoration law is a pretty straightforward one. It's about not only protecting nature, but also try to restore what has been missing. And if we don't do it now, when? So Yeah, human interference in climate change is uh, really impacting biodiversity. So this is about, you know, encouraging more forests, meadows, uh, ditches even. Uh, biodiversity and soil health so um, you know these ecosystems can absorb more carbon and uh, help us reach the climate targets. So we've just heard to what has been happening across the streets of Europe and in the European Parliament and now we can finally move to what gets us together today which is the urgent need for a humane EU migration policy. Every year the number of deaths at sea is rising And worryingly, the official cases reported reflect just a portion of reality, with over 20,000 deaths recorded on the Mediterranean route since 2014, the deadly impact of the EU migration policy has never been more shockingly obvious. So, to get a better idea of what this system means for people, I spoke with social educator and anti-racist activist Sunny Ladan, who has survived the realities of the EU migration policy. This is me interviewing Sunny Ladan. Just a small disclaimer, we recorded this interview in Spanish. Sunny's voice has been dubbed into English. Sunny, welcome to Look Left, and thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning. Thank you also for the invitation. So, before starting, we always ask people to briefly introduce themselves. Can you tell us something about who you are? I'm Sani Ladan. I'm African of Cameroonian origin. I'm a social educator, a graduate in international relations. I'm also an activist for the defense of migrants' rights, the defense of human rights in general, and I'm also an anti-racism activist. But you're also an author, and uh, in your book La Luna Está en Dual, you tell uh, your odyssey to reach Spain. 
And uh, we are seeing uh, the European migration policy is promoting uh, more hatred, more racism, which in turn translates into more criminalization, more deportation and more borders. So I wanted to ask you if you could share uh, some of your experience with us since you have uh, lived them on your skin. My experience is the experience of any young person who dreams of making a living, of getting an education, or who comes here fleeing from a conflict. The only difference is that there are some young people who, when they dream, can make that dream become true because they have a good passport. So, in my case, it is a tragic journey that lasted two years from Cameroon, passing through Nigeria, Niger, Algeria, Morocco, until arriving in Spain through the Tarajal border, swimming the Tarajal border, which we know was in the news in 2014, where the Spanish Civil Guard fired rubber bullets, and there were about 15 people officially killed in that Mediterranean Sea, which has become a mass grave. And all of this is in response to this European migration policy that does not place respect for people's rights at the center, which means that young people have to risk their lives to obtain a right, to obtain a right that we understand to be a fundamental right. Thank you very much for sharing your experience with us. It must have been very, very tough. I wanted to ask you, because also in your book you tell us a little bit about the internment center for foreigners. If you can tell us a little bit about your experience in that place, because according to my knowledge, it's now closed. What was that like? Yes, I was interned in the Foreigner Intimate Center in Tarifa. Coincidentally, it was closed in 2020, but it was not closed for human rights reasons. It was closed because they want to open a macro center in Algeriras. From my personal experience, I usually say that of all the years I have been in Spain, the worst two months were in the Foreigner Intimate Center in Tarifa, in that prison for migrants, where there was like continuous psychological and physical torture so that you could reveal yourself at some point and they would have reasons to send you back to your country. But not only this, if we also look at it through the Spanish legal system, these are centers that violate rights. Because what in the Spanish legal system is an administrative offense, which is, for example, not having documentation, here they put you in prison. Therefore, they are putting you in prison as if you had committed a crime. This sounds shocking. Uh, and after this terrible experience you had, uh, what has your integration process in Spain been like? My process was very hard. It was very complicated, like that of many, many migrants, because there is no mechanism that accompanies it. In fact, even reception and inclusion in Spain are designed as a group. I arrive with some concerns. I want to continue my education. And when I tell the center where I am that I want to continue my education, they sent me to work in the fields to pick up fruits. In the European imaginary, this is where migrants have to be. And when I say this, not only in Spain, but in any country in Europe, when we look at the labor market or the way in which immigrants are directed or oriented, we see that they are led towards this type of work. 
Also, it calls my attention that although we have uh, very similar backgrounds, we are probably the same age and uh, both of us studied at university and now we are living in foreign countries. Our experience is completely different because for me, everything was uh, smooth. No one uh, has ever seen me as a threat because I was born uh, with this right passport you talk about. And this is very unfair. So what would you say to politicians that encourage this uh, policy of criminalization of migration? Los políticos responden, a veces dan respuesta. Politicians respond sometimes to what society demands. As Angela Davis often says, in a racist society, it is not enough not to be racist. You have to be anti-racist. And the question here is, is European society sufficiently anti-racist? That's the question I ask myself. Because if it were, the way it asked its politicians to give adequate, dignified responses, respecting the rights of refugees from Ukraine, for example, they would have done the same for years with refugees and migrants coming from elsewhere. Con los refugiados y las personas migrantes que vienen de otras partes. And we realize that there is a type of racism that we cannot lose sight of when we analyze the European Union's migratory policy. Because nothing can explain the fact that the European Union has taken out a directive from 2008 and kept it in the drawer to provide a dignified reception for Ukrainian refugees in record time. And we have been asking for years for this dignified reception for other refugees. It has not arrived. We even saw the body of that child in Eilat. I don't know if you remember, on the beach. All of this did not move us. And what's more, Europe's shock is a two-second shock from an asymmetry, from this paternalism. For those who don't recall his name, Eilat was a Syrian three-year-old boy, and uh, the image of his dead body on a shore shocked Europe. And uh, a response from the EU to avoid these uh, catastrophes to take place again, never actually arrived. So in your opinion, what needs to change at a European level to have uh, a migration policy that finally focuses on uh, human rights and on the inclusion of people? We must confront the European Union with international treaties, but international treaties that are also designed to include the people of the South. Therefore, even international treaties must have a character in which they are binding, even obligatory. So if we have to appeal to Europe from a moral and ethical point of view, this Europe of ethics and morals no longer exists. We have to confront Europe with its migration policy, with the mirror of human rights, which must always be held up to them. Thank you very much, Sani, for joining us. And I really hope to see this uh, shift you mentioned in the interview actually happen in the EU. So this was Sunny's story. I think it was very impactful because it tells uh, from a, a first-hand uh, experience what uh, all this policy of hatred and xenophobia translates into. And I think it's very, very, very impactful. What do you think about it, David? Well, Sunny kind of said it all. I mean, after hundreds died in the Lampedusa shipwreck, for example, in 2013, Europe said never again back then. But 10 years on, after, you know, thousands and thousands of more deaths in the Mediterranean, all we're seeing is increasing policies that exacerbate the problem, externalizing borders, ever more violent and uh, murderous uh, pushbacks, and more and more efforts to criminalize uh, search and rescue operations. 
No, exactly. I think the criminalization of a search and rescue is generating a lot of problems because in the end, uh, they are trying to provide a solution to this EU inaction. And we've seen during the month of June, this action from uh, the NGO Alarmphone. They've been reading uh, out loud emails and emails and emails that they received from people in distress. It lasted 48 hours. It happened outside the European Parliament. And I think it was shocking that uh, people were just not really listening to these messages of help. Okay, let's hear a clip from that action. SOS from Centromet. January 1st at 15.06 to Maritime Rescue Coordination Center Italy, Rescue Coordination Center Malta. Dear all, please be informed that we just talked to the people on board. People are stressed and exhausted and they start to panic. So that was the action uh, called We Kindly Request You to Stop Killing, which was, as Marcella said earlier, a 48-hour readout of messages sent to authorities asking for help for people in distress at sea. So we've uh, just heard about the action from Alarm Phone. We've heard Sunny's story. But uh, what is really happening in the European Parliament about EU migration policy? Yeah, that brings us to our second interview for this episode with uh, left MEP Cornelia Ernst, who works a lot on the issues we're talking about today, human rights and migration. She's a member of Parliament's uh, Civil Liberties, uh, Justice and Home Affairs Committee. For instance, last month she represented our group, the left, in a mission to the island of Lampedusa in the Mediterranean to see what search and rescue workers are up against these days. In the following interview, she gives her take on the current EU migration asylum policy and how the new agreements between EU member states is going to make the situation even worse. The individual right to asylum is de facto undermined. It is simply a serious failure of the European Union. In this way, deportations are institutionalized, a pushback policy is also institutionalized. In this respect, we have to say that the right to asylum is being curtailed. So the EU frames its approach as based on solidarity, responsibility and respect for human rights. But that's a long, long way from the reality. There is a definition that practically implies that one must be safe from persecution. But in the end, not only the EU, but also member states use it arbitrarily. Greece, for example, has just recognized Turkey as a safe third country only to be able to deport the refugees there. What Turkey has saved their country? This is uh, insane. Only last April there were uh, cases of 12 people on the move forced into a boat in Lesbos to be then transferred to a Coast Guard vessel. And uh, according to InfoMigrant, people have been abandoned at sea so that the Turkish authorities could then uh, pick them up and bring them to the detention center of Izmir. And another part of this deal, the new deal, is that member states will be able to pay for not having people on the move in their countries. Yeah, 20,000 bucks have now been negotiated. 20,000 euros. Hungary and Poland voted against everything. So if you want to oblige Hungary or Poland, for example, to pay for so and so many refugees, then I think it's quite possible that these two governments will say, no, we won't do it at all. 
I don't even think there would be a sale of indulgences, but here we are in a situation where refugees are actually being left hanging to an extent that we have never before experienced in terms of perversion in the European Union. But uh, who is responsible for all of this? So uh, Cornelia gave us some insight into how German politics is driving the debate on the issue at uh, EU level. The current government in Berlin is the so-called uh, traffic light coalition of Greens, uh, Liberals and Social Democrats. But according to Cornelia, this so-called progressive coalition is not so progressive when it comes to migration. In my eyes, the so-called progressive coalition is a regressive coalition as far as this is concerned. And we will see many refugees suffer as a result. The deaths at the borders will increase and we will watch this suffering. This is also a question of democracy that we have to ask for ourselves, whether we actually end human rights at the EU's external borders and say they don't apply there anymore. Then come and make big rules for Iran and other countries. They should also respect human rights. This is really, really a scandal and ridiculous. Cornelia raised some big questions there that I think will remain to the fore over the next year in the lead up to the European elections in 2024, with politicians on the right and far right using uh, racist and inflammatory rhetoric uh, to feed fear and then respond to that fear with cheap xenophobic uh, soundbites in order to get votes. All this is doing is killing people. What we're trying to do on the left is uh, achieve a humane migration policy at EU level. That means moving away from border externalization, ending pushbacks, ending deterrence, and towards a system that prioritizes safety, search and rescue, and fundamental rights. Thanks, David. So these are the fights that the left will uh, keep up in light of the upcoming elections in terms of migration, so that we will finally see a European migration policy that moves from borders and deportations to human rights. And that was it for the fourth episode of Look Left, a podcast from the left in the European Parliament. Let us know what you think about this episode. Feel free to reach out to us. We are always happy to receive your comments and questions. A big thank to our editor Maria Dios from Bulle Media. Sound design and mixing are by Jeremy Bouquet. Until the next episode, look left. <laughs>